0: As we continue our study of Isaiah tonight, we're in chapter 26, chapter 26, and we're in the middle of this section of Isaiah through chapter 24 through chapter 27 that some refer to as the little apocalypse. And the reason they refer to it that way is, one, because of some of the symbolism and just the kind of language that these chapters have, very, at times, very similar to Revelation in the New Testament. But also another reason is because the the viewpoint, the perspective of these chapters does seem to be more long-distant future, eschatological. And so um, some call it then the little apocalypse. And so we're kind of in the middle of this section and we're kind of weaving back and forth between salvation and judgment. And so you see the salvation that God has for his people. And then also kind of the other side of the coin of that is the judgment that God will bring on unbelievers on those who have been engaged in false worship on Israel's enemies tonight in chapter 26. It is uh, really a song of praise in the first part of the chapter. And then really a prayer or a petition to the Lord in the second part of the chapter. But uh, many commentators have called this Judas' song of praise or Judas' song of deliverance. And so in the first six verses is uh, really just a song. It is very psalm-like in the way that it's composed. And uh, it is a song of praise to the Lord for who He is and what He has done. And in chapter 26, the first four verses, it Gives praise to the Lord for the peace that God's people will experience. And it does seem to be future oriented because in the days of Isaiah, you have Assyria, you've got Babylon, you've got all these nations that are in hostility with Judah. So it does seem to be a forward looking picture of a time of peace that the Lord will bring. But it's a, it's a praise. And so what that means is that it's born out of trust, isn't it? It's born out of faith in looking to the future and seeing what God will do and praising him for that. So verse 1 says, In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. So in that day... Is a, a phrase that's popular in the prophets that is generally forward looking to something that the Lord is going to do. Sometimes in that day can refer to something relatively near at hand, but oftentimes it is something far off in the distant future. And, he, and the prophet says, In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Who made it strong? God did. And so the emphasis is not on anything that Judah has done, not anything that the Israelites have done, but it's praising God for his grace, for his mighty arm that has made Jerusalem a strong city. And it describes its walls and its defenses, its ramparts as one of salvation. So it's a metaphor for the salvation that God will bring. And the the protection that God will offer his people. Verse 2 Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. Now, there is no way that the Israelite people can become righteous on their own. In fact, in the time that Isaiah lived, the people of Judah were anything but righteous, the people of Israel were not righteous. And so this is looking to to a time in the future in which God will have made his people righteous. A time in which God will do a work of grace in their hearts. A time in which, if we're right in looking at this as the very end of history, the very climax of the kingdom of God, then it will be those who have been redeemed by the Lord, then made glorified made righteous by his grace. And so uh, it is a open invitation to all who are the Lord's people, to all who are righteous to come in and to praise the Lord. And it emphasizes not only righteousness, but also faith and an enduring faith. You might could say faith and faithfulness on the part of the Lord's people. You will keep in perfect peace. Those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. This is a verse that many people quote. It's a very popular verse in Isaiah. You will keep in perfect peace. Literally, in Hebrew, it is peace, peace. It is shalom, shalom. It is a, and whenever Hebrew does that, it is for emphasis. And so it is, um, NIV translates it a perfect peace. And that's that's probably a good way of understanding it is, it's a peace of peace. It is an enhanced peace glorified, perfect peace. And it's one that only only God can do, right? Only God can bring this kind of peace. And there are different ways of understanding peace, shalom. When we think of peace, we think of maybe the cessation of hostilities, of, of warring parties that are now at peace. That's one way of understanding it. Another way of understanding peace is the idea of calmness or just being in tranquility, calm, not worried, not anxious about anything. And that's another way of understanding it. The Hebrew idea of shalom is actually a very large idea. And there's a a lot of things that can come underneath that umbrella of shalom. Hebrew shalom is really the idea of wholeness, of completeness, of uh, just of really all things being set right, all things being well. Uh, we might even can say that the perfect ideal picture of shalom, in the Hebrew way of thinking it, is the Garden of Eden. It's in a sense of which everything is balanced, everything is perfect, everything is whole, complete. And so certainly it includes some of those other ideas of no hostility, calmness, Uh, But also just things being set right, being complete. And it says God's going to do that. God's going to accomplish this for his people. And it is a peace that comes to our minds, to our ways of thinking. And it is a peace that can come because of our faith in the Lord. So trusting in the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it, that when I thought about this verse, I thought about another verse that is really kind of close to it in the New Testament, and that is when Paul says, uh, don't be anxious for anything, don't be worrisome, but instead pray to God, right? Bring your requests, bring your petitions to God, and then what? The peace of God will come and guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And so that's that's faith, being able to give God our concerns and not worry about them, that's faith, giving them to God in prayer, and then we can experience then it's peace, this tranquility that this verse is talking about. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. So just a, a, a psalm of praise, trusting in God, trusting in the Lord because of his strength. Verse 5 and 6 is um, really kind of a contrast to the first four verses. The first four verses are talking about praise, giving praise putting trust in the Lord verses five and six give the reason why we can put our trust in the Lord and why we can look forward to this time of peace. It's because the Lord has dealt with his people's enemies and has brought them low brought them down to the dust. So verse five says he humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Now think about this from Isaiah's perspective. And from the time that the Israelite people are living during this time of Isaiah, the strong city here, or this lofty city, I should put it that way, this lofty city could be Babylon. It could be Nineveh, or uh, one of the great cities of Assyria. And it is a city that's described as lofty because of its own pride. So it has exalted itself in pride. And... So Assyria are enemies of the Lord's people, and Babylon, they're enemies of the Lord's people. You might even even could say that this is a generic lofty city. And any who lift themselves up in pride, any who ex- try to exalt themselves above the Lord, uh, any who oppose God and his people, God's going to humble. He's going to bring low. And verse 6 then says, feet trample it down, the feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor, probably talking about the Israelite people. Those who have been oppressed, like the Israelite people, the people of Judah, underneath the weight of oppression from this lofty city, God's going to turn the tables. And he's going to take this lofty, prideful city and make it low. And he's going to take the, the poor and the oppressed and allow them to trample on the dust of the ruins of that lofty city that has been made low. And so you have a contrast between a strong city in verse 1 and a lofty city in verse 5. The lofty city is prideful in human terms and has exalted itself, but God has brought it down. The strong city in verse 1 is strong, not because it's strong by human means, but because it's strong by divine means. God has exalted it. And made it strong. So they're praising God for providing a place of refuge for the righteous while also bringing down the ungodly and the proud. And then the rest of the chapter kind of takes more the form of a petition, a prayer, calling out to God. Uh, Almost in the sense of verses one through six was looking forward, praising the idea of this peace coming. And now verses 7 through 21 are more like a prayer calling for that to come, but still that kind of forward look looking focus. The divinely smooth pathway, verses seven through nine. The path of the righteous is level. You, the upright one, make the way of the righteous smooth. Now, again, this is from the perspective of faith. Because in actual experience, the path of God's people has been very difficult. It's been hard. But within Isaiah's time, as well as the Lord Jesus says, you're going to face persecution in this world. We see in the book of Revelation that the people of God will face persecution and trouble. So this is from a perspective of faith that, that God is with his people. He is guiding them along the path. Even when there are rocks and holes and difficulties in that path, God is with them and making it smooth for them as they go along that way. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. So there's that forward-looking. God, we want you to come. We want you to accomplish these things. We want your peace. We want your kingdom to come. And it's a a call for that to come, but it's also a, a resolve to abide in faith and walk in the Lord's word, that in the way of your laws, we wait for you. So we want to walk in truth and live in faith, but we desire for your will to come and be made complete. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. The idea there, I think, is kind of a contrast between the present reality, but the future ideal that this portion of Isaiah is looking toward. Right now, from Isaiah's point of view, from the people of Judah's point of view, it is not a world of justice. From our perspective today, we can see many, many instances where we can see that the world is not one of justice, but we look forward to a time when the Lord will judge, when the Lord will bring justice, and when that happens, the Lord's righteousness, his justice will be on display, and the world will see it. And I think that's what this is talking about, is, Lord, come and act Bring your justice and your righteousness so that the world may see it and so that they may learn of who you are. But in the meantime, we groan and we wait for that time to come. Impenetrable blindness is the viewpoint of the world in verses 10 and 11. But when grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of the Lord. It's a it's a perspective of spiritual blindness, of spiritual death, that even when God does good things for a people, even when God blesses a people, they continue to reject him and they continue to go on doing evil. Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. So again, like in verse number eight, it is a call for the justice of the Lord to come. God, bring your righteousness, bring your justice. And this is saying, Lord, the world has had so many opportunities, the wicked, the unbelieving, and yet they continue to abide in the spiritual darkness. So Lord, come. And bring your justice, bring your fire of judgment on them. And it's a righteous plea. It's a plea that doesn't arise out of personal anger, but one that arises out of righteous indignation. Lord, bring your justice. Then a divinely ordained peace. Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. Isn't that a great verse? That's a great verse because, one, it reminds us that any hope, any peace that we have, any peace that this world has to look forward to can only come from God. You know, there, there are a lot of people that desire peace in our world. And there are a lot of people who are working to bring, try to bring about peace in our world. There are diplomats and ambassadors going here and there trying to work out agreements mm-hmm between nations. And not that those things aren't important and not that we can't make some positive steps, but ultimate peace can only come from God. Ultimate peace can only come when the Lord comes. And it's also a reminder in this verse that everything that we have, everything that has been given to us, even everything that we've accomplished with our hands and with our work, our energy, our talents, all of that ultimately is because of God. That's a great reminder that sometimes we can put hope and trust in ourselves. Sometimes we can take pride in ourselves and our own abilities. This verse reminds us that all those abilities, all those talents, they came from God. The time and the energy that you had to put into those accomplishments, that came from God. Uh, Like the verse says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So everything that we have comes from God. Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honor. And that's just a historical reality, isn't it? From Israel's point of view that there have been other kings, other empires, other powers that have ruled over Israel, over Judah. But this is a, this is a, a cry of faith, an allegiance. Lord, other people have tried to rule over us, but really you are our king. You are our Lord. They are now dead. They live no more. Their spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. Again, this is the sovereignty of the Lord, isn't it? That these powerful kings, these lords who move armies and take over countries, ultimately God rules over them. And God brings them down. Those powerful kings, they last just a short time on the grand spectrum of eternity. God accomplishes his plans, and he brings them to nothing. You have enlarged the nation, Lord. You have enlarged the nation. You have gained glory for yourself. You have extended all the borders of the land. This seems to be looking at the land of Israel, the land of Judah. And again, I think this is forward-looking. Because in the time of Isaiah, it wasn't extensive borders. In fact, Judah and Israel were split. Israel was about to go into captivity to Assyria. So you've got just this little Judah down here around Jerusalem and Bethlehem kind of by itself. Not really any great power, no expansive borders. So this is looking forward to this time of shalom, this time of peace that God is going to bring. Out of the dust is God's grace to his people. Lord, they came to you in their distress. When you disciplined them, they could barely whisper a prayer. And and I think this is referring to the downcast of the Lord's people crying out to him in their time of difficulty. As a pregnant woman about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, Lord. So we've been, we've gone through the fire. We've gone through the difficulties, the times of oppression that these other nations have imposed upon us. But Lord, we cry out to you. We were with child. We writhed in labor, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth and the people of the world have not come to life. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Isn't that an incredible verse? The people of Israel recognize in verse 18, Lord, we were just crying out to you. There's nothing that we could accomplish on our own. But But you, Lord, verse 19, your strength can give life to the very dead, can raise them up. I think this is a great verse that points to a belief in the possibility and the, the reality of future resurrection for God's people. There are not many clear verses in the Old Testament that point to a future bodily resurrection, but I think this is one of them. You've got Daniel 12, 1 and 2 also. This talks about, at that time, many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting shame, but others to everlasting joy. And so you've got some verses in the Old Testament kind of scattered here and there that provide witness to this time of future resurrection. So in the end, the only way that this city of peace, the city of prosperity, the shalom is ultimately going to take place is at the end of time through resurrection when God comes and makes all things right. And at that time, God's people will be secure from wrath. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it. The earth will conceal its slain no longer. Again, kind of like what we've seen before. You've got two sides of the coin. You've got salvation verses 18 and 19 talking about the resurrection of the dead of what God will do. He can give life to his people. But then verses 20 and 21 seem to be looking at more the judging side of things of God bringing his righteous judgment upon the earth. And what's interesting is the way verses 20 and 21 are portrayed, especially in verse 20, it says go into your rooms, close the doors until the Lord passes by. It's very much Passover language from the book of Exodus. And so you've got, in the book of Exodus, the Lord's anger is going to come on the land of Egypt. It's going to kill all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. What are God's people to do? God's people are to kill a Passover lamb, apply its blood to the doorposts of the house, but then go inside and take refuge inside that house that has been atoned for while God passes over. And when they are passed over they are delivered and God's judgment falls on the rest. This is very much in that same kind of picture that is that Isaiah is describing this future judgment. So God's people we're going to be safe inside under the watch care of the Lord, but the Lord is going to pass over in judgment and he's going to bring his justice on the earth. For Isaiah he doesn't give us a a date on the calendar when this is going to happen, does he? He doesn't He doesn't give us very many time hooks to put any kind of definiteness on on this picture. That's why it seems to be a far-off looking picture of what God's going to do in the end. And and I think this is what many of the prophets do. Many of the prophets take a look at the near-term future, at the present and the near-term future, and they see how God's people are in difficulty uh, how God's people are under oppression, maybe from Assyria or Babylon. But then what it does is it against the backdrop of that, it provides a more far distant horizon in which you can view the near term difficulties up against the eschatological final salvation of the Lord. And, and that brings hope, doesn't it? That brings hope. I think one of the great purposes of prophecy in the Bible is to give hope to God's people. So that while they're in the midst of oppression or persecution, in the midst of difficulties, of trials, they can cast their vision up. They can look up instead of looking down. They can look up and they can see off in the distant horizon what God's going to do and how God's going to bring it all to completion, to shalom and accomplish his, his plan and his peace. And his people will experience that. So we have a great hope to look forward to, don't we? Great hope to look forward to. Yes, the present may be difficult for Judah in the 700s BC. May be difficult for us in 2018. May be difficult, even more difficult for some folks in 2018 if you live in China. Or you live in a Muslim country. Difficult times. But there's hope. Because of what God's going to do. And he's going to bring his peace. It's not yet. That's why we have to wait. But we can wait in hope. And we can wait in faith.